Now, NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio with Lee Whitting. Whether you're listening on TalkZone, by podcast, through the archives of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel, or connected through the incredible content of our Facebook page. While I rejoice in the growing popularity and acceptance of the reality of near-death experiences, I do sometimes worry the social media and entertainment industry can color how actual NDEers decide to report their experiences. When you've read hundreds of accounts on YouTube, for example, the understanding of your own NDE can come to be understood in what others have seen as well. And when you're groping for words to describe an experience, you can begin to believe your story should be standardized and in the process important personal details, which can differ extremely, may get lost in how reports of the tunnel and the light come to be described. I was reminded of this again the other day when a thoughtful listener sent us a 1983 article from the Ions Journal. So I thought today I would read a portion of that report. It comes from a different time and culture as researched decades ago by Dorothy Ayers Counts of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. Back then, the Ions Quarterly Journal of Near-Death Studies was named Anabiosis, the Journal for Near-Death Studies. The following is abridged from the December 1983, Volume 3, Number 2 issue, and contains the texts of three near-death experiences, one vision and one dream by Melanesian villagers. Researcher Counts writes, The Melanesians with whom I work live in the Kali electorate of the north coast of West New Britain province, Papua New Guinea. They have been missionized by the Roman Catholic Church since 1949, and many of them are at least nominally converted to Catholicism. The Kali'i mission established primary schools throughout that area so that almost all of the coastal people born during or since the 1950s have had some formal education. Schooling has been much more problematic for the people of interior Kali'i. Although the People have undergone rapid change since the end of the Second World War. Their customary rituals are still in place, and people say they initiate their children, celebrate marriage, and mourn their dead in much the same way as did their grandfathers. People also share a cosmology that is similar to those reported for other Melanesian peoples. This cosmology rests on assumptions about the nature of the human spirit and the process of death that are much different from those made by people of European and North American societies and contain elements that are compatible with near-death experiences. First, the concept of a unitary human spirit or soul is alien to them. They have been introduced introduced to the notion of soul by Christian missionaries, and the word has entered their vocabulary as soul, S-O-L, The Calier assume that the human spirit is two-faceted. In their language, spoken by about a thousand coastal uh, of the people, the two facets of the human spirit are the tau-tau, spiritual essence, and the anu-anu, shadow or image. Illness occurs when one of the spiritual components is separated from the body and cannot reunite with it. If the separation is permanent, 
death results. The complex notion of spiritual being is expressed in these two terms, which are used interchangeably by people who are discussing ghosts or spirits. No animals have this spiritual component. While it is a part of all living human beings, including the fetus and the mentally incapacitated. Either aspect may leave the body of one who is ill, and either the spiritual essence or the image of a dying individual may be seen by others several miles from the still breathing person. People disagree about what happens after both aspects of the spirit leave the body. From comments that informants made in 1966 and 1967, uh, researcher counts concluded that many of the Lucy once believed that one or both aspects of the spiritual component of the deceased person remained near the body until it decomposed. In 1981, after 15 additional years of Roman Catholic influence, the same consultants maintained that the unitary soul goes to be with God immediately after death, only if the surviving kin fail to pay to have a final mass said for the deceased, would the soul remain near the grave? In other words, the Catholics <laughs> told them the spirit would be stuck as a ghost without a mass being paid for and said by them. Counts writes, It is my opinion that this latter belief introduced by the Roman Catholic Church exists simultaneously with the assumption that one aspect of the spiritual component of the deceased person remains near the community where he lived. And this would explain why in 1981 villagers attempted to contact the spirit of a young man who had been dead about a year in an effort to learn who had killed him with sorcery. A second concept critical to an understanding of, of the Kalia notion of near-death experience is the conceptual content of the indigenous notion of death. It is widely reported that the understanding of life and death held by the Melanesian people is quite different from our own. As long ago as 1912, William H. R. Rivers observed that the boundaries of the term mate, a term found in many Melanesian languages and which is usually translated as dead, are not the same as ours. The category of mate includes the very sick, the very old, and the dead. Furthermore, it is a state that may last for years as people become socially disaffiliated, and it's not separated from life in the way that we consider death and life to be apart. To the Melanesian, Rivers argued, existence after death is just as real as the existence here, which we call life. Further, life after death has the same general aspect as life before death. The Luzi-speaking Kallier share this notion that death is a process rather than a single event. There are widely known signs that physical termination has occurred. However, death is a process that may begin long before the physical signs are manifest, and within reasonable bounds, it is reversible. In Kallier, the physical stage of the dying process usually begins with unconsciousness or partial death, and moves on to true or complete death. A dying person may return to life at any time, including after he is truly or completely dead, but not after the body has begun to decay. The dying process is well advanced if the person's breath smells of death, an odor that is referred to as being salty or sweet. If he stares without blinking 
or shame into the face of another person, if he is restless, and if he loses bladder control. Death is complete when breath stops, when heartbeat ceases, and when the eyes and mouth open. The spiritual component leaves through the eyes or mouth, or occasionally the anus. The corpse is usually uncovered for public viewing until it begins to bloat. Then it is wrapped in a mats, and the dead body usually becomes tight and rigid within several hours, but sometimes this does not occur. And occasionally people are buried whose limbs are, and body are still flexible. Adults are usually buried between 24 and 36 hours after physical death is understood to have taken place. Researcher Counts writes, when I returned to Calier in 1981, I asked my consultants if they knew of anyone who had died and returned to life and who could remember what had happened to them while they had been dead. I was told of a number of people, including young children, who had returned to life after dying, but only three men who died and returned and remembered the experience. There were Calier-defined deaths and were not verified by a physician or an advanced medical technology. I was also told of two other persons who had not died, but who had reported having experiences that were similar to those of the returned dead. I interviewed both of these men as well as the men who had returned from the dead. And because of the content of their experiences is similar to the content of the near-death experiences, um, the, uh, the first one named Frank is the most highly educated and acculturated of the men who had a near-death experience. He had been headmaster of the Collier Community School and was in 1981 serving as member of the provincial parliament from Collier. His near-death experience occurred while he was campaigning for election to this office. He became ill and fell asleep on another man's bed, a bed he subsequently came to believe had been poisoned by sorcery. The next morning, he began to suffer from a pain that began in his toe and shot to his, his head. And during the day, the pain became much worse. And the next morning, he was unable to walk or to eat. His brother carried him to the Calier Clinic, where the nurse gave him an injection in his leg. The next day, when he was no better, he asked his kin to carry him to the beach and place him under a canvas lean-to, a clear sign that he expected to die. The following day, he died into his NDE, and here's his story. I think I died for about five minutes. I saw a group of Aulu ancestor spirits who showed me a road. I followed it and saw a man with white skin and long white robes, a beard and long hair. He was bright as though there were a flashlight focused on him. And although he did not light up the area around him, his light seemed to be directed at me. He had large hands, which he held up palms toward me, blocking the road. He moved his middle fingers, motioning me to stop, and stared at me. And then he motioned to me to turn around and come back. Then Eloi, uh, a fellow villager who had died some time before, cut my leg and spit ginger on it. And um, Counts notes that spitting ginger on a wound is a traditional healing practice, especially when a wound becomes infected as a result of sorcery. It was as though I were asleep, but my eyes were open. I saw a group of men singing and dancing, and an old man whose name was Kasiru. He said to me, What do you think did this to you? You climbed Mount Kavalil, Kavilville, 
and your knee is tight, so you must die. Then the others scolded him for poisoning me, and they made a song which has in it the words, Kasserua and knee is tight. When I came to myself, I remembered the song, and I've taught it to others. Then she uh, talked to a man named Andrew. Andrew is a young man who lives in the Anam-speaking interior village of Bolo. His death occurred at the small hamlet of Vuvu, which is located about a kilometer from Bolo. His experience, which was well known throughout the, the Calier area, was thought to be especially remarkable because during his vision, he saw the spirit of a woman whose death had occurred shortly after his and about which he could not have had any knowledge. His experience was also remarkable because, according to local definitions of death, he was dead for several hours. His kin had gathered pigs uh, for his funeral feast and um, and they'd been uh, pigs had been killed, and the meat was being prepared for division, and his grave had been dug before he turned returned to life. Shortly after Andrew's death occurred at Vuvu, the wife of the lay minister of Bolo took some food to the young boys residing in the Bolo men's house. She was returning to her own house when she collapsed and died in the village square. She did not recover and was buried the next day. It is this woman whom Andrew reports meeting during his near-death experience. After Andrew recovered from his illness, one of his legs was withered, and he now walks only with the aid of crutches. Andrew says, The day I died, I was very sick and was sleeping in my house. I died at noon when the sun is high and came back at six o'clock that afternoon at dusk. At the time I died, there was a woman who hadn't died. She cooked food and distributed it, but when I died, my spirit met hers on the road. When I died, everything was dark, but I went through a field of flowers, and when I came out, everything was clear. I walked along the road and came to a fork where there were two men standing, one on either road. Each of them told me to come that way. I didn't have time to think about it, so I followed one of them. The man took my hand, and we entered a village. There we found a long ladder that led up into a house. We climbed the ladder, but when we got to the top, I heard a voice saying, It isn't time for you to come. Stay there. I'll send a group of people to take you back. I heard his voice, but I couldn't see his face or his body. I walked around trying to see him, but I couldn't. But I saw the dead woman that I had met on the road. I saw her leave me. I wanted to call out, Hey, come back! But I couldn't, for this house turned in a circle. I couldn't see the man who talked to me, but I did see children lying on platforms over the doors and windows. As I was walking around trying to see everything, they took hold of me and took me back down the steps. I wanted to go back to the house, but I couldn't because it turned. And I realized that it was not on posts. It was just hanging there in the air, turning around as if it were on an axle. If I wanted to go to the door, the house would turn, and there would be another part of the house where I was standing. There were all kinds of things inside this house, and I wanted to go see them all. There were some men working with steel, and some men building ships, and another group of men building cars. I was standing, staring, when this man said, It's not time for you to be here. Your time is yet to come. I'll send some people to take you back. You cannot stay. 
This woman you saw coming here, it was her time, and she must stay. But you must go back. I was to come back, but there was no road for me to follow, so the voice said, Let him go down. Then there was a beam of light, and I walked along it. I walked down the steps, and when I turned to look, there was nothing but forest. I stood there and thought, If they have started mourning for me, I won't go because the voice said, Stand there and listen. If there is no mourning and no dogs howling, you go back. But if there is mourning, you can come back. So I walked along the beam of light through the forest and down a narrow path. I came back to my house and re-entered my body and was alive again. I got up and told my father of my experience, for he didn't realize what had happened. I died at noon and came back at six o'clock. I spent a long time wandering around this house before they sent me back. Question. When you were a spirit, did you see your body? Answer. No, I didn't see my body. I just came back, and when I got up, I was well and told everyone what had happened. Question. Were you sorry or happy to come back? Answer. I wanted to go back there. It's a happy place, and I wanted to go back, but I, I couldn't. See how my leg is crippled here? And the third NDE story was told by a man named Luke. And Counts says, Luke was an elderly, Annam-speaking man, originally from an interior Calier village, who had spent many years working on a, as a laborer on a Iboki plantation. He was interviewed by Dorothy's husband, David Counts. So Luke said, I had gone to get Erica nuts at the village of Kandoka. Uh, I'd come back through the village of Lavori and had bathed in the Vanu River when I fainted. I lay there in the sun until my daughter Anne found me. She told me to get up and help me walk back home where I went to bed. I was unconscious for two days and a night. They put me on a litter and carried me up to the aid post at Rig Rigiala. While they were carrying me, my arms began to shake and they said, hurry, carry him to the aid post. When I finally got to the aid post unconscious, I was put in one of two wards. But when the staff saw me, they said, he's already dead. So the men brought a pig intending to have my death feast and to bury me the next day. I was gone. I was no longer conscious of that place. I had gone. A dead kinsman of mine, Raoul, and my uncle Bill came down and I saw them. They said, come on, let's go. We followed a wide path that starts uh, on the other side of the, of the government rest house, an aid post in Sulky Village. It was a really wide path, and we followed it to a village. There were houses lined up side by side on either side of the path. Underneath, there were barred, uh, underneath they were barred with rails that ran parallel to the ground. We wanted to go inside one of the enclosures, but... After my companions entered, the bars closed up, leaving me alone outside. I stood there looking under the house, watching while they went up into the house by a ladder that was pulled up behind them. Once the ladder was pulled up and the house was closed, I stood looking around for a while, and then I started up the path, taking a left-hand fork. I was alone because the two men who had come for me were gone, so I left the houses and just wandered along. After a while, I came to a place where there were houses with verandas 
They were absolutely packed with people. They were as thick as thieves. There were also magnets, like manhole covers, lined in a row. These magnets were scales, and as I came to them and was recognized by the people, I loudspeaker announced, this is a place for sorcerers. Sorcerers come here for judgment. Here is someone for trial. Don't speak to him. Just watch what he does. I heard the loudspeaker from the roof of the veranda. I walked in front of the first men, and they clapped their hands lightly and pointed for me to go sit down on the scale. But I didn't sit down. I stood up on it. After standing there for a while, I stepped back down to the ground, and all of them applauded and motioned me to the next one. They told me to sit on it, but once again I stood on it, and as I stood there, the people on the veranda began to clap. And when I stood on all the scales, the loudspeaker said, Here's Manlin. Manlin, open the door here and let this important man come and sit down. Let him smoke and chew beetle. Manlin came down a carrying a key. He went up on the veranda and opened a door, and the loudspeaker said, Come on up and sit down. I did. Then the loudspeaker said, Here is a sorcerer from Icon Village. He tried to go up the steps. Manlin waited inside for him and opened the door for him, but the loudspeaker said, All right, come on up. But he couldn't. The magnet on the scale held him fast. Then the loudspeaker said, Arulari, and a man came carrying a crowbar, and all the spectators clapped. He used the bar and pried the man's legs free from the magnet. When he was free, the loudspeaker said, All right, you go up and chew beetle. We see you as a little boy, but you were a leader in your village. You had a reputation, so you go and sit and chew beetle and smoke. As he climbed up the steps, everyone slid over to let him pass. He walked along the long veranda that joined the houses until he found a place to sit down, then they gave him tobacco and lit it for him, and when he'd finished smoking, the loudspeaker said, All right, speak for yourself, pitiful man. You had a big reputation, but you came here, and the men captured you and held you as if you were a small boy. Speak now. The man said nothing. He just kept smoking. After a while, the loudspeaker said, Aruari, bring knives. As this was said, there was a huge dish filled with knives. Aruari ran inside and got the knives and brought them to ten men. Each of them took one and they began to chop him up. The open mouth of a large pipe came out of the ground nearby as they chopped him up. The pipe quivered and they started an engine underneath the ground. It rumbled and roared, and the ground shook. They threw the parts of the man into the pipe and I could hear the bones crunch. It boiled, and three puffs of smoke came out. When it finished boiling, the flesh of the man was put into two enormous dishes. The loudspeaker said, Aruari, here's the food. So Aruari carried one dish, and another man, Amoli, carried the other one. And as I watched, I wondered, where are they taking the flesh of this man they've ground up? I stood up and watched as each of the men carrying a dish placed it underneath the house. I looked up and saw Mount Andiwa and a ridge leading up to the peak, and I noticed the coconut fronds waving. I looked back at the food, and I saw a large dog eating the meat from one of the dishes. Well, I looked at the, when I looked at the other dish, I saw a huge pig eating there. The dog finished eating first, but the pig continued to eat while the dog looked on. 
licking his lips. I watched for a while, and then once again I glanced toward Andiwa, where I could see the coconut fronds waving. When I turned back again to look at the pig, I saw that the dog was a long stone lying there, and I thought, what's happened to this dog that it's now a stone? Then I looked at the pig, and the same thing had happened. After this, the loudspeaker spoke again, saying, When you were in your village, you claimed to be an important man, but in this little place you have been eaten up by a knife, a dog, and a pig, and now fire will utterly destroy you. When the loudspeaker had finished, a fire blazed up and destroyed the remains. Then I began walking, and I found my daughter, Maria, who had died. She was putting Arika nuts into a large basket, and when it was full, she put the basket on her head, and, and I asked, where did you get the nuts? I got them in the village here. Then I saw my grandfather with her, so I asked my daughter, who's that with you? I was trying to trick her, because I really knew who it was. She replied, this is my ancestor here. Then she said to me, Papa, here's some arica for you. Bring your towel here. When I died, I carried a towel. So I gave her the towel, and she put it on the ground and filled it to overflowing with the nuts. And then she got a rope and tied it up and said, There, take your arica nuts and go. As I watched my daughter, as I watched, my daughter turned and followed her ancestor along the path, and I grieved for them and tried to follow them, but the path disappeared. So, heartsick, I turned away. I thought, well, I'll get the nuts my daughter tied up. I picked up the towel with the nuts in it and stood looking at the path when I saw a woman coming. Her tongue was hanging down to her chin, and her eyes were bloody. She was carrying a knife and was coming to stab me. So I ran until I reached the aid post. I went in and I yelled, help! All of you, get up! Chew some of this areca. All of the nurses were astonished. My Lord, this dead man is talking. Then they asked me, what happened? I replied, there was a spirit woman carrying a knife who was trying to stab me, so I ran all the way back here. While I was talking, I could hear the spirit woman chopping at the planks of the aid post, striking at the walls around. I said, you wait until you see this woman, the one that chased me. Then I went and sat down on a bench. All the time I sat talking, I could hear this woman cutting at the planks. They built a fire, and we talked until we could hear the cows lowing. And then I said, bring me some food and some water. I washed out my mouth, and when the food came, I ate it. I wanted some pork, but they told me that I couldn't have pork. I should only have vegetable food. And that's all. That's the end of his story. So Counts writes, the following two experiences of Jacob and Wallace are not near-death experiences. One is a dream, but the other may be an out-of-body experience, a vision, or an experience of hypnagogic imagery. I should make two points before presenting Jacob's vision. First, the woman, Gagandua, whom Jacob wanted, wants to meet, is the heroine of a myth the people believe to be based on fact and to recount events that really happened. Gagandua is a spirit woman who lives in a village on Mount Idiwa, uh, the home of the dead. The myth recounts a time when, because of the marriage of Gagandua to a mortal, social relationships were possible between humans and the spirits of Andua, 
and people were able to see the Andua village. Now when people go to Andua, all that is visible is forest and a helicopter pad installed by a scientific survey team. The reason Luke placed emphasis on his ability to see coconut fronds on the ridge leading to Andua was in the, in the preceding account is that coconut palms are a sign of human habitation. On Andiwa, no sign of occupation, uh, no signs are visible to human eyes. But while he was dead, Luke was able to see evidence of the spirit village that is invisible to the eyes of the living. The second point is that Jacob had obviously thought a great deal about the nature of his experience, and he had emphatically rejected the possibility that it was a dream. He enumerated the following differences between his vision and normal dream state. One, it took place while his family and he, he were sleeping near their gardens, but he felt his spirit leave his body, a feeling that is not normally part of a dream. Two, he was aware of minute details, such as the texture of the foliage around him and the litter on the path beneath his feet, details one does not tend to in a dream state. He says that he noticed the detail while he was having his vision and that during this, the experience, he rejected the idea that he was dreaming. The thought that he might be having a dream occurred to him at the time because of the fantastic nature of the things that were happening to him. Three, he was aware of the color of things. Four, he could look about himself in the same deliberate way that a person in an ordinary state of consciousness would st stare with curiosity at his surroundings. And five, he was thinking rationally and critically during the experience. The experience, he says, had none of the bizarre and illogical character of a dream state. It was like a dream, but it was different too. It was as though I left my body and went on a journey. So Count summarized the interview with Jacob. When his vision started, Jacob found himself with a lame fellow villager, Carl, who was carrying his walking stick. Carl denies having shared this experience. They decided to enter this, the mangrove swamp to fish, and because it was dark, they lit a pressure lamp. And while they were fishing, they heard a large canoe enter the swamp, and fearing that they might encounter hostile Kove, who occasionally come there to fish, they put out their lamp and made their way to the other edge of the swamp where there was solid ground. When they got there, they found a large paved road going up onto Mount Andiwa. They did not relight their lamp, for it had become as bright as day. There were car tracks on the road, and they decided to try to get a ride if a car came by, for Carl was tiring quickly until finally they heard roosters crowing, and they came to a village. There they found two of Jacob's kinsmen, both deceased, who greeted them and asked why they were there. They explained, and as they sat talking, Jacob looked around and saw that there were there was an outer village with houses made of thatch in the usual manner and an inner village with houses that were new, bright, and shiny. Jacob then noticed a pile of food, taro and bananas, and since he was hungry, he asked his kinsman, Nare, for something to eat. His kinsman refused, saying, No, you can't eat one of these bananas. If you should eat it, you couldn't return home. You would have to stay here. Jacob protested that he was very hungry and that the statement was ridiculous, but Nare refused. Then Jacob asked how his kinsmen had grown such large taro, for the corms were much larger than anything in Jacob's garden. Nare replied, You understand, in the place where you now live, everything is small, but here everything is large. 
Our village is large, and so is our taro. They were sitting and talking when a bald man appeared and reacted with anger when he saw Jacob sitting there. He insisted that Jacob leave, and when, Tara, when Jacob refused, he left saying that he would do something about it, for Jacob did not belong there. Then Jacob asked Nare to show him the house where Gagandewa lived, for by this time he realized that he must be in the spirit village of Andiwa. Shocked, Nare refused, advising Jacob that the woman was a powerful spirit to be avoided. Jacob then asked Nare to show him more of the village, but Nare uh, replied that he would soon have to go to work. Surprised, Jacob questioned his kinsmen and learned that all of the village residents worked for wages and they, the pay was uh, differential depending on how long a person had been there. Nare earned 150 kina a day. Once again, the angry bald man came, this time with soldiers to drive Jacob away, and so Jacob's kinsmen agreed that they would take him back to a place where he could find his way home. After a series of adventures growing out of Jacob's insistence that he be allowed to meet Gagandewa before he returned home, he found himself once more in the spirit village near Narai's house. Looking about him, Jacob realized that there seemed to be a gap between two of the houses in the village. He asked Narai to show him what was beyond the gap, and at first Narai refused. Finally, he and another kinsman took Jacob by the arms, and they walked between the two houses. Then Jacob says, We didn't take many steps. From the middle of those houses we took only three steps, but when I looked around I could see for miles. Nare, is, is that what it's like? I asked. Yes, he said. I saw speeding cars. I saw flowers lining the roads. I saw multiple lane highways crossing and recrossing each other. There were so many cars that I was confused. I saw men and women walking along and cars running, but there were no collisions, no accidents. It was a beautiful place, a good place without mistakes. I saw nothing wrong. I heard no children crying. The place was illuminated by a strong light that lit up the flowers and the houses so that the colors were brilliant and clear. It made my eyes pop out. I asked Nare, Nare, where does that light come from? It doesn't have a source. It's just there. I looked, and as far as I could see, until they were tiny in the distance, there were houses. Then I looked behind me, but the thatch houses weren't there. I asked, Narai, we, we only took three steps. Where are the thatched houses? Narai laughed and said, I already told you, this is a big place. The thatched houses you're asking about are a long way away. A long way? How did we get here? Where are we? Do you think that time and distance are the same here as where you live? No, it is not the same here. Time and distance are different here. It doesn't matter whether something is far away or near. Here they are the same. I looked, but I couldn't see the edge of the forest. All I could see was the city and the light. There were no trees or grass. Once again, I asked Nare, Nare, when we are down on the beach and we look up here, we see forest and mountains and huge rocks. If we try to climb up to Andiwa, the way is steep and we are afraid of falling. Where is all that? He replied, 
It's here. This is the mountain. But when you see it from down there, it seems to be rough and steep. When you come here, you can see that it's not so. There are no mountains. Uh, there is no jungle. It's all clear and settled. Jacob stood there in wonder so that he did not notice that he was being surrounded by a group of people who took hold of him and began turning him around until he was spinning like the propeller of an airplane. Then he was in bed in his little shelter and his garden. He awoke his wife to tell her of his adventure, and she laughed and told him that it was only a dream. However, Jacob is certain that his experience was no ordinary dream, and that if his spirit had eaten food, or if he had stayed in the spirit village, he would have died. His experience has changed him, he says, for now he has seen the land of the dead, and he no longer fears death. So next, Arthur recounts Wallace's story. She writes, Wallace says that his experience was a dream. Uh, she uh, included it in, in this uh, writing, she says, because it shares elements with some of the near-death experiences and with Jacob's vision, and because a number of Callier consider Wallace's dream to provide a glimpse of, into the world of the dead. At the beginning of my dream, there were many of us, but I became separated from the others on the road. I wanted to follow them, but I didn't know which way they had gone, so I went inside a door. I thought I'd find the way if I went through that door, but I didn't. Instead, where I was, uh, where I was there, uh, where I was, there was sunshine, and it was light in the distance, but in, in between it was dark. I felt my way along the road, and finally I came to a clear place on Mount Andiwa. As I walked along, I realized that my older brother, who was dead, was there. He was sleeping, and as it was dark, I too lay down to sleep. When it became light, I saw that it was indeed my older brother. He left, and I realized that I was alone. I had been sleeping near a glass wall which surrounded Andiwa and the village inside, while there was a bush outside the wall. I could look through the glass and see men inside. I got up and suddenly I found myself on the inside. There were two men standing there, and as I approached them, I recognized them. One of them took his knife, and they said, Come on, let's go now. One of them went first, I came second, and the other man came last. As we walked, I saw that the place was tidy and very nice. There were flowers and the short coconut palms with the red nuts planted along the wide road, and there were many smaller roads with flowers planted along the edge, just as white people plant flower borders along their streets. The sun wasn't strong. It was as though it was covered by a cloud so that the light wasn't bright or hot. We walked along a ridge until we came to my mother's house. My mother was sitting on her veranda, and when she saw me, she said, Say, why did you come here with those men? She went inside her house and got a box, which she put outside on the veranda. I climbed up and sat down on the veranda, but she went back inside her house so that I didn't see her again. We sat there for a while. Then the two men said, hey, let's go. As we walked, they said, let's go see where those who have drunk fish poison or who have hanged themselves stay. We'll show you where they live. We went to the place where they lived and sat down. They said, watch them. It won't be long until lunch. When the cook rang the dinner bell, they all came running to get their food from her. They snatched food from each other and ran with it so that nobody got to eat properly. 
and their homes weren't any good. They lived in half-finished houses of thatch or metal, and their settlement wasn't inside the wall. Rather, it was outside on the edge of the jungle. Their place was swampy, so that they had made paths through the mud with logs and limbs, and these paths led from one house to another. When they had finished eating, they sat around, and some of them started singing. Then one of them saw us, and they tried to kill us. They got their spears and clubs and rocks and came after us, so we ran away. We ran until we came to a huge breadfruit tree growing on the edge of a river. The fruit was about a half a meter long. I started to sit down when I saw a man. His jaw was hanging down onto his chest, and his eyes were huge, like something out of a nightmare. We ran away from him, back inside the wall, and we began walking down the road back toward where we had started. Eventually, we met another road where there were many people. There was much smoke, the sounds of engines, of men hammering, and there were many cars running back and forth. We went inside a house and sat down, and I asked the owner, Say, I've heard that when we die, we'll all go into the fire. Is it true? He replied, No, it's just a parable. When we die, we go to work. Then he asked, When you came, did you see a big road? We re replied that we had indeed seen a highway covered with smoke, and he said, That's it. That's where all the sorcerers are. We don't work. We just relax, and in the afternoon, they bring us our food. All we have to do is relax and eat. They have to work and provide the food. We sat there for a while. And then he said, Do you know the man from Lolo who had two wives? Well, he doesn't speak his own language anymore. Now he speaks Anem. And when we are alive, we speak many languages. Uh, but when we die, we come here and we all speak one language. As we sat there talking, a woman came and sat down beside us. She began to scoot over towards us, and we moved away from her on the bench until I was at the very end. Then the bench tipped over. The other end flew up, and I fell onto the ground, and then I was awake. And here is uh, Dorothy Count's uh, conclusion. Perhaps the most interesting questions from an anthropologist who wishes to study the phenomenon of near-death experiences are, how much of the con content of such experiences is culturally derived? And do these experiences have common qualities that cut across cultural differences? Obviously, three near-death experiences that occurred during deaths that were not verified by trained medical personnel, one vision and one dream from a Melanesian society are insufficient to warrant any profound general conclusions. Nevertheless, these cases do represent a start in the collection of cross-cultural data, and they do permit some tentative observations. And these are what she observed. One, in no case did a Callier look down upon his sleeping or dead body. Two, no one reported feelings of strong emotion or of floating in space. Three, no one said he experienced a feeling of exaltation shortly after death or before having his vision or dream. Four, no one reported hearing a loud buzzing or ringing sound or music at the beginning of his experience. Five, there were no reports that people felt as though they were moving at great speed through a long, dark tunnel. Instead, all of my informants journeyed by foot on a wide path or road. All but Frank and Andrew specifically traveled toward the mountainous interior of New Britain, and three of my informants 
saw or went to Mount Andiwa and the village of the dead. Six, only Frank, who is the most highly educated and acculturated and the only English speaker, reported seeing a man with white skin and long beard and dressed in white robes. Seven, no one mentioned having a new body, and the only unusual power mentioned was the ability to see evidence of spirit habitation on Mount Andiwa. Jacob's ability to see and travel long distances was a result of the unusual nature of the spirit world and not an artifact of a new and especially powerful body. Eight, no one spoke of having feelings of love, joy, and peace during his experience, and only Jacob volunteered that as a result of his vision, he no longer fears death. Andrew did express reluctance to return to life and pointed to his withered leg, an artifact of his nearly fatal illness, as giving him reason to regret his return. While on the journey, each person saw an apparition of some sort. Some apparitions were deceased, uh, persons known to the individual having the vision, and included a daughter, a mother, an ancestor, unspecified kinsmen, a neighbor who died after the subject, and fellow villagers. Others seemed to be derived from mythic or religious symbolism, Gagandewa and Jacob's vision, the ancestor spirits and the white skin seen by Luke and Wallace. Um, robed, bearded man seen by Frank. People are reluctant to awaken or to return to the world of the living for the place that they perceive as being the world of the dead often is a pleasant, happy place. However, the content of paradise varies and seems to be culturally defined. People apparently experience the land of the dead as having desirable aspects that are unattainable or at least not ordinarily experienced in this life. North Americans and Europeans see a beautiful garden, while Collier find an industrialized world of factories, highways, and urban sprawl. Notice that whereas North Americans do not report going to hell or being judged for their earthly behavior, uh, and Indian notions of karma are only vaguely suggested, uh, some Collier do experience a judgment in which the individual having the vision is vindicated, while others who are hated and feared, specifically sorcerers, are punished. Well, here we'll, we'll end this report of a very different cultural uh, experience of near-death experiences. My thanks to the listener who sent this in to us, and thanks to Ian's journal and Dorothy and David Counts, who wrote this account we've just heard. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to hear this show again or any of our more than 500 archived and ad-free NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE Radio and hit the Past Shows button, or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE Radio library. And be sure to check out our NDE Radio Facebook page. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. And listen next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying once again, thanks for listening.